Come on over. Let's pray for Tom. If you want to stretch out a hand. Great. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would come and fill Tom right now. You would anoint him for this work, Lord. You would give him words and that we would have hearts ready to receive what you have for us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in and through him, Lord. And we pray for more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you, bro. Mm. Thank you, Pete. Isn't it great having Pete leading the service? Yeah? First time. Should we have him back? No. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. So next week is a daffodil, yeah? <laughs> yeah. If you did not see Pete as a daffodil, you are fortunate last week. Anyway, here we are tonight, fourth sermon of the day. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing, because this is a really important topic. I'm, I'm really passionate about it, and it's... Um, it's something that's really close to my heart. So I'm delighted to be preaching on this subject of the freedom of the cross. But I want to start with a question here tonight. What are you most looking for when you come to listen to a sermon? Take a moment to think about that. Okay, what was the answer? Hopefully it was not the end. <laughs> It may have been some irreverence, it may have been some reverence, it may well have been some relevance, but how many of you would expect to find those things in a sermon on the cross? There certainly isn't a lot of potential for jokes, is there? So that's the irreverence gone. And I have to say that to someone who's not from a Christian background or doesn't know too much about Christianity, it must seem rather weird that actually rather than doing what we might expect, which is a religion um, talking about the teaching or the, uh, the achievements um, and the life of their hero, Christianity so often focuses in the death of Jesus. And undoubtedly, it is the centerpiece, isn't it, of the Christian faith. We wear it on our uh, necklaces. Our churches are built in the shape of a cross. Well, some of them are anyway, and perhaps not this one. Um, the cross is everywhere, and it's written through the pages of the New Testament. A quarter of the Gospels focuses on the events leading up to Jesus' death. But what about you? How relevant does the cross feel to you in your daily life? How often do you think about it? And by that I mean... Do, how often do you actually engage with it, not just mentally, but emotionally, so it changes the way you feel? What's the answer? You don't have to tell me. It's a challenging question, and I, I think if you're anything like me, the answer may be, well, not very much at all at least some of the time, that's the answer. Because I think in practice, and people who've uh, spoken to me today have confirmed this, that unconsciously, we often see the cross, yes, as the necessary gateway to becoming a Christian, that we believe that Jesus died for us, and that is the means by which we can come into faith and to eternal life. And so it's of eternal importance, and yet we don't think of it as being something of ongoing relevance and interest as we seek to live out the Christian life. But I want to challenge that. And I hope that what we're going to look at tonight is going to enable us to see it in a different way. And I, I want to begin actually bringing a bigger perspective by asking you some more questions. Uh, so forgive me, but here they are. Do you worry about how other people see you? Here's the next one. 
How do you feel when other people criticize you or look down on you or overlook you? Here's the next one. How confident do you feel? How happy with yourself do you feel? Do you sometimes wish you were someone else? Do you struggle with pride? Well, that's certainly a pretty heavy set of questions, isn't it? Goodbye to those light, fluffy beginnings to sermons that we're used to. But I've got a reason for beginning like that today. And it's this, that I think the reality of our answers to those questions is that actually we do care desperately how other people see us. And we are actually devastated, or often close to it, when people criticize us or look down on us, especially when it's people whose respect or admiration we value. And we often do lack confidence in ourselves, and we often are terrified of being negatively compared to others. And this means, if the truth be known, that we spend far too much of our lives feeling anxious, fearing failure, and even wishing we were someone else. And on the occasions which do happen, so for some of us perhaps often, but on those occasions when we are admired or we are complimented, or maybe where we do feel that we've been successful in some way, well then we find ourselves not just enjoying it, but actually struggling with pride. Am I right? It's certainly true of me. I can identify with these things, and I believe it will be of many of you as well. So here's why this sermon matters here tonight. And this is the key point. Because actually, the cross can transform your answer to every one of those awkward questions. And can do it not just once, but time and time again. Tonight, we're going to be thinking about why that is. And I have to say at this point that I um, make no apologies for the fact that I am drawing very heavily on one little book, which is an absolute gem. Here's a picture of it on the screen. Has anyone read this? Tim Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Put up your hand if you've read it. Two people at the front. Very good. The Eberharts have read it. I'm surprised not more of you have one over there. It is a fantastic book. And I have to say that it only takes an hour to read. It's free on Kindle. You can download it for peanuts on Amazon. Every time I've read it, it has changed me. It is so profound and it takes just an hour. I'm going to give you a little bit of a a potted uh, summary of it tonight with a little bit of my own take as well. Now, what is so special about this book? Well, I think it's this. What it does is it gets underneath the teaching of Scripture, in particular the New Testament, and in particular the teaching of Paul. And it What it does essentially is exposes the underlying theological and psychological principles that are at play. And it does that in a way that is truly, truly profound. And the crux of what I'm going to talk about tonight and what Tim Keller outlines in their book, I think is found in verse 31 of the passage that we heard read tonight. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that might leave you thinking, well, that's a relief. I don't have a problem with boasting. So this isn't about me, although I have to say that if that's what you're thinking, well, that is actually a boast. So that's you scuppered as well. But anyway, my point is actually not really about just boasting. It's the underlying boasting is something deeper 
And that's what I want to talk about tonight. It's a deeper underlying problem, and that is an unhealthy concern with what other people think about us. And it can just as easily manifest itself as, as in low self-esteem, in anxiety in social situations, in moral compromise, in being a workaholic, in over-exercising or over-dieting, or an obsession with popularity or success, or any number of other things. The reason is because we all have an ego, and it's our ego that is the problem. Well, what is an ego? Maybe many of you are familiar with this term, and uh, if you're not, let me just tell you what dictionary.com says, and this is the definition I've been going with tonight. It's our self-esteem, our self-image, or feelings. And what Tim Keller highlights in his little book about our egos is that they are by nature empty, painful, busy, and fragile. And when I say by nature, what I mean is that without the transforming power of God at work in them, they are those things. That is what happens as a default unless God intervenes and we allow him to go on intervening time and time again. So let's unpack this a little bit further then. How is the human ego empty? Well, the 19th century Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who you may have heard of, he put it like this. It is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. Spiritual pride, he continued, is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, to achieve our own sense of self-worth, and to find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. And of course, if we put anything else in the middle of that hole that's actually meant to be where God is, it's too small. It rattles around in there, and it leaves us tremendously unsatisfied. So our egos are by nature empty. And secondly, they're also painful. Why? Because they are constantly making us think about how we look and how we're treated by others. Now people sometimes say, don't they, and you probably say this yourself, my feelings are hurt. But actually our feelings can't be hurt. What's hurt is our ego, our sense of identity, our sense of self. That's what's hurting in those situations. And the reality is, if we're completely honest, is that this happens time and time again. Just think about how hard it is to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or stupid or getting down on ourselves. It certainly happens to me regularly. And that's because of what's wrong with our ego. It's always drawing attention to itself and it's constantly busy trying to fill the emptiness by comparing ourselves with other people. C.S. Lewis talked about this in Mere Christianity. He talked about how pride is actually competitive, but it's not just pride, it's all of these other things as well. And he says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're just proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. And if everyone was equally rich, equally clever, or equally better looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Is he right? Of course he is. And so whether we're feeling superior or inferior, whether we waver from one to the other depending on the context or the day of the week, 
The root of the problem is the same. Our ego is making us compare ourselves with others, and it manifests itself in us either feeling inferior or proud. And let's face it, neither of those two things are good things, and both of which leave us fragile. Why? Because we're either feeling bad about ourselves straight away, or we're in imminent danger of feeling bad about ourselves as our pride is deflated, unless our ego is once again appeased. And at this point, I want to turn to Madonna to illustrate the point. That may surprise you, not what you're expecting, but here's a picture of her in a slightly younger day. She says this, she's got a lot to say actually, and it's very helpful as we think about our egos. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. And Keller paraphrases her thoughts that continue like this. Now I have got the verdict that I am somebody. But the next day I have to go and look somewhere else. Why? Because my ego is insatiable. It's a black hole. It doesn't matter how much I throw into it. It's never, ever enough. And he concludes that we might be tempted to think she's neurotic. But no. She actually simply knows herself better than we know ourselves. Or she's simply being more honest. Does this resonate with you? It certainly does with me. Because it's the normal state of the human self. It was what lay behind the pride of the Corinthian church and all the divisions and the difficulties that they had that this letter is speaking into. But it actually lies behind all of the negative feelings, or many of them, that we also experience today. What is the remedy? What is the only remedy? It's the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which transformed Paul's sense of self-worth his sense of self-regard and his identity, and went, which meant that, frankly, his ego worked in a completely and utterly different way. So just to illustrate this then, let's do a little comparison between Paul and Madonna again, an unexpected development in this sermon. But here we go. We've got Madonna, and there we've got the Apostle Paul. Now, Madonna, what do we know about her? known as Madge to her British audience, which apparently caused her to emigrate recently back to America. She hated it so much. But she's of humble origins, dubious early career. But then things took a dramatic turn for the better. 1984, her first hit, Holiday. Her second album, Like a Virgin, 1985. Number one in the album charts all over the world. I bought it. I didn't tell my mum, but... <laughs> It was great, and she was an absolute superstar, and so much so that she's now sold 300 million records worldwide, and she is, according to the Guinness World of Records, the best-selling female recording artist of all time by an absolute mile. She's also won a Golden Globe as an actress for Evita and awards in fashion design, writing children's books, filmmaking, and as a businesswoman. What a phenomenal person. So that's her. What about Paul then, whose background actually is far more impressive? And we know because it's recorded for us in Philippians 3. So what does he say there? We may well know the words. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. 
So that's the irony then, isn't it, of how he begins our passage tonight. Telling the Corinthians that so few of them were wise or influential or of noble birth when he himself actually was. And so how extraordinary it is what he goes on to say. So what was the rest of Paul's achievements or claims to fame? Well, he planted most of the early churches, you're probably aware, which led to Christianity spreading across the whole world. He wrote far more of the Bible than any other human being. He's got churches named after him all over the world, including our most famous cathedral and even a top-flight German football team. Keller describes him as undoubtedly one of the six or seven most influential human beings ever to have lived. Even the so-called queen of pop cannot beat that. And yet the comparison I'm really interested in tonight, though, is not their achievements. It's the stuff that that quote from Madonna was all about. How they fill that hole, that desperate desire for significance, for affirmation, for approval, and for respect. What do they do? Well, Madonna looks to herself, to her achievements, and the things people say about her, things that by her own admission either fail or never last. And what does Paul do? Chapter 2, verse 1 of our passage. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or as he put it after that resume of his, um, his background in Philippians that we heard earlier, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that from a man who had so much to boast about. So what's going on here? Something truly extraordinary, which is that Paul is not looking to his own achievements and he's not comparing himself to anyone else. In fact, he's not even thinking about himself at all. And unlike Madonna, as his 14 New Testament letters reveal to us, he is finding his purpose, his joy, his peace, his fulfillment, his self-acceptance and self-worth that he craves. And what is its source? It's Jesus, crucified on a cross, dying for him, dying for you, dying for me. And what does this mean for us? It means that if we're to find the purpose, the joy, the peace, the self-acceptance, the fulfillment that we crave, we need to do likewise. We need to stop comparing ourselves to others, stop looking to our achievements, stop thinking about ourselves anywhere near so much, and instead look to something completely different for the basis of our identity, for our self-worth, and as a source of love and affirmation and peace and security. Look to Jesus, who verse 30 of our passage tells us has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. What does it mean? 
It means that if we accept for ourselves that priceless gift of Jesus dying on the cross in our place, then when God looks at us, what he sees is what he sees in Jesus. His righteous, spotless, blameless, dearly loved and valued, precious child. And the key to finding peace and joy and self-worth is to believe this. But not just to believe it theoretically, but to actually allow the astonishing truth of it to sink home mentally, emotionally, and to absorb and comprehend the fact that we are truly free. Free of the need to try and impress others. Free of the need to impress ourselves. Free of the need to compare ourselves to others. Free of the need to strive to be perfect. Free of the need to have to persuade people to love us. Free of the need to prove ourselves. Why? Because the astonishing truth of what Jesus did on the cross and confirmed by rising again is that in God's eyes, we are now perfect. And we are deeply and passionately and wonderfully loved. As Paul put it in Romans 8, verse 39 and 38, that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor future nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation, including anything that life can throw at us, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Which means nothing that anyone can think about us. Nothing that anyone can say to us at work, at uni, at school, a family member. Nothing that anyone can do to us. For this is true security and true confidence and true self-worth rooted in true humility, anchored in the gospel of Jesus. And C.S. Lewis describes this gospel humility like this. If we were to meet a person with this true gospel humility, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. Why? Because they would not be always telling us they were a nobody. Because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. Rather, the thing we would remember from meeting them is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself and not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about ourselves, not needing to connect everything with ourselves. It's an end to thoughts like, I'm in this room with these people. Does this look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means stop connecting every experience, every conversation with us. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And it's the peace with God and with ourselves that only self-forgetfulness can bring. So how do we know whether we've got there or getting closer to there? Well, here's a little test. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It would not devastate them. It would not keep them up late. It would not bother them. Why? Because a person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what people think, on other people's opinions, 
Whereas a person who is self-forgetful instead takes criticism and uses it positively as an opportunity to change rather than a devastating verdict on themselves. Let me draw this all together with a final analogy of a courtroom. What Paul is looking for, what Madonna is looking for, and what we are all looking for is an ultimate verdict that we are important, that we are valuable, and that we are loved. We look for that ultimate verdict in every day, in all the situations and people around us. And that means that every day we are effectively on trial. And everything we do is either providing evidence for the prosecution or for the defense. And some days it feels like we're winning the trial, other days that we're losing. But Paul says he has found the secret. The trial is over for him. He is out of the courtroom. It's gone. It's over. Why? Because the ultimate verdict is in. And that means that we no longer need to do anything to impress others or impress ourselves. Rather, we seek to live a life of love and holiness in response to God's unconditional love and acceptance that is already ours if we've accepted that gift. So where are you at this evening? Maybe you haven't yet accepted that gift. Maybe you wouldn't yet say that you're a Christian. Well, let me say to you tonight that that is the most important decision you will ever make. It's the most wonderful decision you will ever make to ask Jesus into your life to receive that forgiveness to know that you have become a dearly loved, adopted child of God. If you haven't made that decision yet, I would really encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to me, talk to Pete, talk to Josh. And we'd love to help you to make that decision here this evening. But what if that's not you? What if you're in a different position? You believe the gospel. Maybe you've done it so for years or even decades. But, and this is a very big but, Every day you find yourself being sucked back into that courtroom, worrying about what others think about you, feeling down on yourself or feeling proud of yourself. What's the solution? What's the answer? It's go back to the cross. This is what you need to think about. This is what you need to pray about. This is what you need to worship about. This is what you need to have written through your blood. The cross. It means it's over. You're free. The verdict is in. You're perfect in God's sight. You're loved. Completely and utterly loved. You are precious. You are truly valuable and truly special. And when this week you lose sight of that, when this week you start getting sucked in to compromise because you want to fit in with people around you, when you find yourself this week feeling stung and hurting because someone has criticized you or you've looked bad in some situation, when you're beating yourself up this week because you made a mistake and you hate yourself for doing it, or when you... Find yourself 
wishing you were someone else, feeling jealous of someone else. Go back to the cross. And remember that you don't belong in that courtroom anymore. You should not be there. The court is adjourned. The verdict is in. You are truly loved, truly valued, truly precious. And in God's eyes, you are perfect. The final verse of our passage tonight again was this. For I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that what you're willing to do? Are you willing to put the cross back at the center of your faith? Not just as a theoretical concept, but actually at the heart of who you are as a person, of what you're depending in, and of what is fueling your peace, your joy, and casting away all your fear. That's why the cross matters. And that's why the moment you stop thinking about it, you're in trouble. (laughs) Well, we're going to respond to what we've heard now tonight. I'd love to invite the band to come forward. But I, I think the first thing that we need to do is just take a moment just to process what we've heard So why don't we close our eyes and um, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit just to bring clarity now on what he wants to say to each of us in response to what we've heard. So Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit now to speak to every one of us. Lord, as we listen to you, would you fill us and would you speak to us? don't know what God is saying to you but what I do know is it's whatever it is it's very important it's very precious and he's calling you to embrace it to run with it to pray about it and to live by it I'd love to invite the prayer ministry team just to make their way to the front now. And perhaps we could all stand and we're going to continue to listen and to respond.
Now, I don't know what struck you most about what we've been thinking about tonight, but one of the things is that we're all in the same boat. There is no place for boasting. And I want to invite us now just to um, take a step of saying that I want to live by the cross again. I want to relive the gospel again. I want to put the cross at the center of who we are, who I am. And I want to allow the freedom of the cross to be my experience once again. So if that's you, we would dearly love to pray for you tonight. There is no downside to being prayed for. But there's a massive upside of actually saying, I'm going to step forward. And I'm going to claim that freedom again for myself. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the hundredth time. But it's no less important. (laughs) So this is an opportunity for us now. The band are going to start to play in the background. And if you would appreciate someone praying for you tonight, that you can step back into that freedom. Do come forward now. This is a safe place. Choose to take that step to reclaim that freedom. Whether you're a Christian of 60 years standing or of six weeks, or maybe you're You've never taken that step before. We would love to pray for you. Why don't you make that freedom real for you this evening? I wonder where this is hitting home for you. Maybe it's peer pressure. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's just feeling down on ourselves. Maybe it's just a lack of joy. Maybe it's an ambition that just drives us and never leaves us satisfied. Maybe it's a self-identity that's in desperate need of repair and healing. Maybe it's hurting because of things that some people close to us have done and said. I invite the band to to lead us in a, 
a quiet song of response. And please do continue to come forward. We would love to pray for you. And what I'd love you also to do, if you're not coming forward, is just pray for those around you. Just pray for those people you can see in front and behind, that they would know this freedom. So do please continue to respond and the band will sing to us, sing with us as we do that.